been dealing with up until then. Even Athens, which is the capital of Greece nowadays, was about, what, 20,000, was it? Something like that. Now in Ephesus, he's in a city that's 10 times the size of Athens and four times the size of Corinth. <laughs> it's a massive place. It's a place he's wanted to get to for a long time. And it's going to teach us a few lessons about how you share your faith. But first, uh, let's just see if this is going to work for us. It's making nice noises, but nothing else. This is interesting. So, right, let's, you know why? All ah, right, okay. Okay. It was working fine earlier on, yeah? Let's give it a try and see if we sing a song for us. That's interesting. Mm. So it's flashing the laser light, but nothing else is happening. Oh, there we go. Okay, how could you do that? Possibly, okay. Well, they're between us. Sorry about this. Okay, first, we have to look back at what happened since last week because we've taken a bit of a jump. Let's uh, go back a little bit. Yeah, it's working now. <laughs> and uh, see what happened uh, last week. Do you remember that he started off in Athens the week, uh, the, the installment before, and then he went across to Corinth, which is not further away, and from Corinth, uh, he, he, he now moves on. People have sometimes said, well, did Paul go to Corinth at all? And it used to be one of the famous things that was said about the book of Acts. Uh, after Paul had been to Corinth, in the story that we talked about last week, he was uh, taken by some of the Jews who didn't like what he was saying and taken in front of the Roman governor. And this Roman governor called Gallio cared for none of these things, and he dismissed the case, and Paul went on his way. And people used to say, aha, now we know that this proves the book of Acts is telling lies. Because we know all about Gallio. He was quite a famous person. He was the brother of the philosopher Seneca. And so we know everything that happened in Gallio's life. And there is no way that he could have been in uh, Corinth in AD 51 or 52, which is when Paul was there. And for a long time, that was held to be one mistake in the book of Acts. But actually, north of Corinth, you'll see there's another little town called Delphi, where there was an oracle who gave prophecies, but that's not the point. There are lots of inscriptions at Delphi, and we found an inscription that was left by the Emperor Claudius at the shrine in Delphi. And uh, this is the inscription here. And uh, it contains these words, as Lucius Junius Gallio, my friend and proconcle, recently reported to me. And there's the word Gallio, it's outlined in red on there, although you might not be able to see it. And uh, that just proves that Gallio was actually the proconsul of uh, Achaia. And when is this stone dated? AD 51. And so scholars started saying, oh, well, maybe there was just one year when Gallio might have been in Achaia. We didn't think that was true, but perhaps it is. And of course, Luke is absolutely correct. He's a very careful historian. He doesn't get those things wrong. We now know that Gallio was a guy who was uh, not very um, keen on challenges, and he was a bit of an hypochondriac. He was always getting ill. And when he went to Corinth, he was obviously, it's a filthy, disgusting place. It's a, a seaport. I could catch all sorts of diseases here. So after about nine months, he made an excuse to give up his post and go somewhere else. But he was definitely in Corinth. Anyway, that's not really what we're talking about this week. Let's see what happened after that. After working in Corinth for the best part of two years, Paul then goes across to Ephesus. He's on his way home. This is not the trip we're reading about in Acts 19. He's just on his way home to Antioch, where he comes from. And he called in at Ephesus, went into the synagogue. People said, hmm, this message of yours is interesting. Tell us a bit more. And he said, no, I can't now, but I will be back. 
because he was convinced, had been convinced for years, that God was sending him to Ephesus. He hadn't been able to go before, but he felt that now was the chance. However, he left Ephesus, and he went back to Caesarea, went down to Jerusalem and said hi to the church there, and then went up into Antioch and spent some time reporting on everything that had happened in that incredible missionary tour he'd just been on. Then after some time, he left again, and he went back to the south of Turkey visited the churches there that he'd established way, way long ago, strengthened them, helped them. Things were going great in that part of the world. It's where people came from anyway, Tarsus and Cilicia. And so he felt very much at home there. But he really wanted to get to Ephesus. While he was in the south of, of, of Turkey, however, uh, another man came to Ephesus, a fellow called Apollos. Now, we don't know why he came to Ephesus or where he came from, because really he came from North Africa. He's a native of Alexandria. But he was somebody who was a great, great teacher. The only problem was he hadn't learned much about the gospel yet. <laughs> and so when he came to uh, um, Ephesus, Paul had left Priscilla and Aquila, his friends from Corinth, right there in the church of Ephesus. And they grabbed Apollos, took him home for a cup of tea, and said, okay, let's sort out uh, your theology for you. And so they talked to him, they taught him a, a bit more about Jesus, and uh, as a result, Apollos became an even better teacher. And then they packed him off to Corinth. They said, we used to be in a church in Corinth. When the Apostle Paul planted it, you need to go there and teach them. And so Apollos went to Corinth, and the church that Paul had left in Corinth went from strength to strength because it now had another great Bible teacher there. The only problem was, as we will see, in the church in Corinth, people started saying, huh, this is a different style from the Apostle Paul. Hmm, we like this guy better. He's quite a powerful preacher. He's got lots of funny stories. We like this man. Ah. And some people started saying, no, no, Paul was really good. And others said, no, Apollos is really good. And there started to be a bit of a division in the church in Corinth. Well, we'll get to that. But anyway, in the meantime, Paul finally leaves the south of Turkey, travels across to Ephesus, and this time, got, uh, the Spirit is not saying to him, you must not preach in this province. Wildlife has disappeared. Good. And uh, um, Paul goes to Ephesus to start to preach. This it brings us up to date. We're now at the start of chapter 19. So, what do we find in these 10 verses in chapter 19? First of all, we find there's an explosive breakthrough for the gospel. No wonder Paul had uh, longed to get to Ephesus for so long, because this is something that uh, really it makes the gospel explode in all kinds of ways. Everybody in the whole province of Achaia heard the word through Ephesus. And no wonder, because Ephesus was a great center. Everybody had to come to Ephesus from time to time on some kind of business. And so as they were passing through, they had a chance to hear the gospel from Paul's little outpost of preaching. And all kinds of things started to happen in Ephesus. Explosive breakthrough. But it wasn't just that. Behind that explosive breakthrough, there was first of all an unexpected beginning. And that comes in the first few verses of our chapter. And there's something else that doesn't appear in Acts 19 at all. And that is an agonizing background to the whole thing. Because what you're reading at Acts doesn't tell you the full story of what happened in Ephesus. And you have to piece it together from Paul's letters and other places. And when you do, you realize he paid fantastic cost for that explosive breakthrough. So I want to look at those three things uh, in the next few minutes. First of all, let's look at this unexpected beginning. He goes to Ephesus, full of hope, because finally God has let him go. He's given him the green light. He's off to preach to the pagan world. 
It's a massive, massive city. 26 different temples, well, there are more temples than that, but 26 different faiths worshipped in Ephesus that we know about in those days. Second city of the Roman Empire. Incredible place. And Paul expects to be talking to crowd Jews and Greeks about the gospel, especially the Greeks because it's such a pagan city. And what happens? The first group he meets as he goes through the interior to Ephesus is a bunch of 12 men who are kind of half Christians already. They're muddled. They don't know much. They've had the baptism of John, but the, the Bible calls them disciples. And that usually means people have got some kind of connection with Jesus already anyway. But they just didn't understand too much about it. And so Paul asks them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no. Uh, it, what it says in the NIV is, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. But actually, they don't, didn't mean by that, we haven't heard whether the Holy Spirit exists or not. Because you couldn't be amongst Jews very long without realizing that God did have a spirit, a powerful spirit, through whom he created the, 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 the universe. The spirit breathed on the face of the waters, all that kind of stuff. And the spirit appears right through the Old Testament. They knew the Holy Spirit existed. What they were really saying was, we haven't heard the Holy Spirit's been given to people in the way that the prophet Joel promised, in the way that happened on the day of Pentecost. They just hadn't heard about that. And so Paul thinks, ah, I know exactly where you are. And so he preaches to them, they're baptized, and they unexpectedly become the first converts in Ephesus. Just notice three things about them. First of all, these weren't the people that Paul expected to meet in Ephesus. And when you go out to, to share your faith with people, God will lead you in some strange directions. He'll lead you to some very unexpected people. I've got a guy who brings me up all the time from, from Winchester. Uh, he's been a friend of mine for some years. Um, and he was on the phone 20 minutes last night. Um, you never get rid of Matt easily. And he's somebody whom I feel totally unqualified to help. He's very autistic, but he's brilliant in some ways as well. He's a cartoonist, he's a writer, he does various things. A lot of what he does isn't very good, but there are occasional flashes of brilliance in it. And when I met him, he was a student at uh, the Sixth Form College in Exeter uh, who... Uh, got my attention by saying that he believed that Jesus was really a Buddhist. And I said, that's not true. And he said, well, there are scriptures that prove it. And I said, show me them. And so he came back in a couple of weeks time saying, well, I can't find them, but I still believe Jesus was a Buddhist. <laughs> I thought, I'm not going to get far with this guy. But in actual fact, he had an incredible turnaround, and he became a Christian. And although he has all kinds of things working against him, a totally dysfunctional family who pretty much disowned him, uh, no real home, Nowhere to come back to in Exeter or anywhere like that. He just lives in student accommodation all the year round. No real university course because he's, he's finished what he was doing there and he's not sure what he's doing next. And he's a mess of contradictions, our Matt. He goes around everywhere wearing a black hat. It's called Matt Matt by everybody. And he is the strangest Christian believer I have ever come across in my life. However, he came to faith. And we used to meet every week and work right through that book, The Fight, that John White wrote about basic discipleship. And we'd sit in a coffee shop in Exeter and just go through another chapter. And I'd think, is any of this stuff going in? Because Matt would constantly argue with you. He doesn't accept any idea just because you're seeing it or because it's there in the Bible. He always wants to argue with it. But what I soon found was he goes away for two hours and then comes back and you've convinced him. <laughs> It just takes longer to get there than everybody else. But I feel totally inadequate to deal with that guy. And somehow, all of the other Christians who were around him at one stage have melted like snow, and I'm the one he phones up all the time. And you find that, don't you? Don't you? 
you find people that you never expected to be talking to and that you think, why me? And the second thing is this, you see, who you would have thought, wouldn't you, that God would have sent Apollos to this bunch of people? I mean, Apollos is beaten in Ephesus. He was the guy who came from that background. He was the one who uh, came out of the John the Baptist fan club uh, and, and learned about Jesus, and then Apollo, uh, Aquila and Priscilla sorted him out. You'd have expected him to go storming along the road to these guys. Say, guys, listen, this is, I'll just find out more. There's more than John. There's Jesus too. And this is how it all connects together. But he didn't. Perhaps he never even met them, although they, they could only have been a mile apart from one another. God said, no, not him, Paul. <laughs> and sometimes we just don't know why God sends us to the people he does. But that's one of the things you find in evangelism, isn't it? The unlikely people are often the people who are on. The third thing I just wanted to say about this, though, is this. It's possible to get very close to the truth and still miss the experience. It's possible, isn't it, to look like a Christian, to be committed to the Bible, to live a life of stern discipline, because these guys were disciples. They were practicing what they believed, and yet made the truth. And it was only when the Holy Spirit came and transformed their minds and their hearts that these people could really call themselves believers in Jesus. It's not just a belief. It's not just a theory. It's an experience of the Holy Spirit making you a new person, born again by the power of God. So, that was the unexpected beginning. But there was a second thing to it as well, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, and, and this is the point I want to make out of it. Evangelism is something that needs to be done individually. Everybody is different. I think it's great if you want to learn more about Jehovah's Witnesses, about Mormons, uh, 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 about uh, Muslims, and about Eastern religion. That's fantastic, because so many Christians in this country have no idea whatsoever and they insult people unintentionally by having in their mind a caricature of their faith. And when they say something to them, it's so unfortunate because they just obviously haven't taken time to understand where these other people are coming from. And if we really want to make an impact on people for God, we've got to know where they are to start with. That's why real evangelism tends to start not by proclaiming lots of facts, but by asking lots of questions. Find out where the person is. I mean, you do that course, which is great, then you will find, I think, that most Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing to you over and over again. If you want a crash course in Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, go to Quora on the internet. That's a, a site where anybody can ask any kind of question, and uh, they are answered by volunteers of all sorts. You will find that since lockdown, Jehovah's Witnesses have infested Quora. And all the questions about God or Jesus or whatever, they are answering on there. If you want to know how Jehovah's Witnesses think, you look at the answers they're giving to people's questions on Quora, and you'll get an education in Jehovah's Witness theology very, very quickly. And they all tend to say the same thing. But when you look at Mormons, it's different. For one thing, there are eight different Mormon churches. You might not know that. Uh, there's one big one, and that's the one that sends out the missionaries and so on and so forth. But I found that Mormons, at the moment, are in a very strange state. There are all kinds of different beliefs and, uh, uh, around amongst Mormons. There is a central doctrine, which the uh, uh, 12 leaders in Salt Lake City impose on the whole of the world. But individual Mormons may think quite different things. And when you get to Muslims... Well, Shiites and Sunnis are killing one another. <laughs> you know, in, around, around the Muslim community, around the world, the Ummah, you've got all kinds of different points of view, all kinds of different beliefs. 
and then Eastern religions. Well, that covers such a wide area. Again, so it's great to learn some basic facts about those things. It absolutely is. But realize that people are different. And the individual person that God sent you to may not believe what you think he does. Uh, so evangelism needs to be done individually. But there's more to it than that. This is the second thing. No, oh, no, 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 no. Before we get on to the second point, I've got one more point to make. Sorry. People sometimes think, okay, so you receive the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues and you prophesy. Is that what's supposed to happen all over the place? Well, there are people who use the book of Acts to say yes. If you look at how people receive the book of the, the Holy Spirit in Acts, they always speak in tongues. I don't think that's the case, actually. I think there are four cases in the book of Acts where you see people having supernatural manifestations when they first receive the Spirit. And I think they're quite important. There's Acts 2, obviously, the day of Pentecost. Then the next one is in Acts chapter 8, when the gospel is spilled over into Samaria. And Jews from Jerusalem, thrown out by the persecution after the death of Stephen, have gone north and have started talking to people in the places they go to about the gospel. And here, people believe. They become Christians, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come up from Jerusalem and lay hands on them, and all of a sudden, they are speaking in tongues and sense as well. The third thing is Acts chapter 10, when Peter is sent to Caesarea by God to talk to a Roman centurion. And he founds to his horror that he's invited his granny and his, his, his uncles and his nephews and his nieces. Everybody's there in Cornelius' house. And Peter had never been in a house with a bunch of, 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 of uh, Gentiles before because Jews always used to deal with Gentiles on a one-to-one -one basis. He never went home with them. And all of these people at once. Peter can't imagine what's going on. Then he remembers the vision he, has, uh, he had the day before. He starts preaching the gospel. And before he's even reaching his final point, they're all speaking in tongues and prophesying. Then the fourth one is this chapter here, chapter 19, in Ephesus, where these people have a supernatural manifestation when they receive the Spirit as well. What's happening then? Well, I think we get these four big stories because um, Luke is showing just how the gospel spreads from one group to another until the whole of humanity is covered. It starts at uh, Pentecost in Jerusalem among Jews. Jews from every nation that came to Jerusalem for that festival, but still Jews. They spoke all kinds of different languages, but they were all Jews. And the gospel goes to the people who are, you might say, half Jews. They're Samaritans. They're not proper Jews. Real Jews look down on them, and this thing isn't working again. It is now. That's good. And so you realize that people who are almost Jews but not quite can be Christians as well. And then in chapter 10, a big leap forward as non-Jews show that they too can receive the Spirit for the first time, and that leaves just one group in the world, doesn't it? The, the half-Christians who haven't been evangelized, and so that's what's being spilled in in Ephesians 19. And so you see the gospel advancing from one group to another, and at each stage God does something supernatural, in power, unmistakable, markable, so that everybody can see what's going on. And I think to say, you must speak in tongues or you've not received the Spirit or unless you prophesy, whatever, then that's being too dogmatic. It doesn't happen in that way to everybody. Everybody's an individual, and the important thing is God did these supernatural signs as a way of showing that the gospel is for everybody in the world. However, let's move on to the second point now, because there is this background to the passage that you don't read about in Acts chapter 19. 
And you, 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 you get a hint of this when you read in, in 2 Corinthians uh, some of the, the things that Paul says about his time in Ephesus. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in Asia. Now, Asia doesn't mean Asia, the continent that we see nowadays. Asia was the Roman province in which Ephesus was. In fact, it was the capital of Asia. And Paul says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our capacity to endure. So we despaired even of life. And you look at Acts 19 and say, uh, yeah, where does this happen? It's not, is it? Why was it? Well, you get the hints from other places in Paul's letters. First of all, Paul says that he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. He makes that comment in 1 Corinthians 15. What does that mean? They put him in the arena and had him fight with lions or tigers or whatever? No, it doesn't. Uh, what it means is that he was up against pagan forces that would not let go. You see, Ephesus was built around the worship of the goddess uh, Artemis. And Artemis is a goddess who was the goddess of the wilderness, the hunt, wild animals, and fertility. And she was always associated with wild beasts. That's why her robe is always decorated with uh, lions and, and griffins and things like that. You maybe can't see it in the picture there, but that's the case. If you look below the waist on Artemis' robe there in the picture on the run, she's got lots of animals clinging onto it. Um, uh, she also, uh, she was called Potniatheron, which means lady of the animals. And she could change humans into beasts. She had the power to do that. This is her temple in Ephesus. At least not as it is today. This is a reconstruction of it because it's pretty much disappeared. There's one pillar left of the whole building. But in its day, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had been in Ephesus for hundreds of years before Paul got there. People came all over the world to visit it. And uh, it was the greatest source of wealth that uh, Ephesus actually had. Artemis was a very popular goddess, and people came to worship her from all over the Middle East and the, 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 the Turkish coast. And uh, uh, for a whole month in the year, everything stopped in Ephesus where the festival of Artemis went on. And he had a whole month in which every day was sacred. And so they had parties and feasts and all kinds of stuff. And then uh, they had a breather for two weeks, went back to work, and after that two weeks they celebrated Artemis' birthday. <laughs> So the whole of Ephesus was built around the worship of Artemis. And Paul clearly had real problems with the pagans. Later on in chapter 19 of Tadon, you find how uh, some of the people who were making profit out of Artemis, selling little statues of her, took him uh, to court and tried to get him put into prison. But clearly that was there from the start. The pagans were not easy to convert. It wasn't a case of Paul turning up in Ephesus and saying, oh, by the way, let me tell you about Jesus. And I'm saying, wow, where do we say? How do we get baptized? It wasn't that way. <laughs> there was stern, stern opposition from something that was deeply entrenched in Ephesian culture. And sometimes evangelism can be like that. But there's more. We're pretty sure that Paul was whipped at least once. Uh, because he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that five times he was given the 40 lashes minus one. That's an Old Testament punishment, 40 lashes. And he always used to give the people 39 lashes just in case they'd miscounted and put in an extra stroke. So Paul had the 40 lashes minus one five times. Now, we can't find anywhere in Paul's career where he could have been whipped five times unless one of those times at least was in Ephesus. So clearly, when he went into the synagogue and preached there, on occasion people say, he's gone too far, that's blasphemy, take him outside and whip him. And so Paul paid a physical price for being in Ephesus. The third thing is this, 
that uh, Paul, when he was in Ephesus, thought he would go back to Corinth on a quick visit. He'd go and see how things were in Corinth, and then go up to the north to Macedonia, visit the churches there, do a little round trip and come back to Ephesus again. It was so easy getting there from Corinth, just across the water. And when he went to Corinth, it was such a painful visit that he didn't go any further. Just headed straight back to Corinth, to, to Ephesus. Because he found that the church in Corinth had fallen out with him. They'd become so divided that some people say, yes, we belong to Paul. But other people say, we belong to Apollos. We belong to Peter. We're the spiritual ones. We belong to Jesus. And the church was in a state of open warfare. If you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you find out that Paul felt incredibly let down by the people he'd spent two years working with and whom he counted as some of his dearest friends. Somehow, they just lost all interest in him. He was stale news. Some weren't sure he was a Christian even. And he just found the whole thing very, very hurtful indeed. And that tells us another thing about evangelism, doesn't it? Evangelism needs to be done courageously. Because you're going to be up against it. Never let anybody convince you that evangelism is a delightful job 100% of the time. It isn't. There are great, tremendous things uh, that, that come out of it. I've sometimes come back from a mission I've been doing and the car has floated along the motorway when I think about the results and the, the people who found new life, lives that have been liberated and released. It's been fantastic. But sometimes it's hard slog. And for Paul, it certainly was that way. If you think about it, he was fought uh, by the pagans. The pagans fought him. The Jews feared him, and that was why they flogged him. They let him preach in the synagogue for a long time, but they feared him, and in the end, they threw him out. And the Christians forsook him. They ran away from him. And sometimes you are just going to feel so alone, you wonder if it's worthwhile. But it is worthwhile. And the rewards that come from seeing other people open up to Jesus Christ, and their lives just flower as a result, they're worth any of the pain that goes with it. And there's a third thing. The third thing is that uh, there was an incredible breakthrough. The results of Paul's evangelism were tremendous. And despite all the pain, despite all the heartbreak, despite the near nervous breakdown, despair of life itself that he went through, clearly the breakthrough took place. Let's notice one or two things about this. First of all, as we said, he was thrown out of the synagogue and he had to find somewhere else to go. And so he took a lecture hall next door. And we can work out what his life was like for about three years, what his daily schedule would be from the way that people spent their lives in those days. From 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. They were the working hours of the day. And Paul, we know, was working during those hours, probably with Priscilla and Aquila. You know, they'd made tents together in Corinth, probably they'd gone, they'd gone uh, into business again in Ephesus, and Paul joined in with their business. So he worked from sunrise through to 11 at 11 a.m. in Ephesus, everything stopped. The sun was getting too hot. And most people went and had a pretty extended siesta. It's been said there were probably more people asleep in Ephesus at 1 o'clock lunchtime than there would have been at 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so people went for a sleep, but not Paul. He took this lecture hall. Tyrannus, whoever he was, had finished his lectures for the morning. It was too hot to continue. That meant the hall was empty. So Paul hired it. And so from 11 a.m. through to 4 p.m., we know he was teaching in the lecture hall. From 4 p.m. on, well, his time was his own. But you know, if all 
the, the people in Asia heard the word of, of, of God and churches were planted in all sorts of places, uh, uh, like Laodicea, Colossae, all sorts of places around Asia. That means that we did a lot of follow-up work after four o'clock, personal conversations with people, personal discussions, people coming and saying, can I just ask you some questions? I've got a list of 73 here. You know, that kind of thing. It went on into the night. So it was hard, hard work for Paul. He went from leather work at 11 o'clock, so on stop, to lecture work at 1 o'clock, and the whole thing just went on. And Stott actually counted up how much uh, work Paul put into it. He said this, Assuming that the apostle kept one day in seven for worship and rest, he will have given a daily five-hour lecture six days a week for two years, which makes 3,120 hours of gospel argument. You're being challenged if you knew a verse that would, that would prove the Trinity. Could you keep going, explaining the gospel and answering questions for 3,120 hours? This was in-depth stuff, wasn't it? And John Stott uses that fact. I say, listen, most of our evangelism these days is just too shallow. He says there are three things you could say about it. First of all, when we contrast much contemporary evangelism with Paul's, its shallowness is immediately shown up because our evangelism tends to be too ecclesiastical inviting people to church. Whereas Paul also took the gospel out into the secular world. And he was right, wasn't he? Wherever you go, whoever you're talking to, at work, wherever you are, you are potentially preaching the gospel. Even if you're not explaining about the resurrection every five minutes, you are showing in the life you live in front of people what Jesus Christ is doing in a human life. And that's evangelism. Sometimes it needs words. <laughs> but it's all evangelism. And we tend to think it's not really evangelism unless we bring people to a service. And that can be putting another barrier in their way. Why would you want to come into an environment where everybody but you believes one thing? Well, you don't know what's going on because you don't normally go to church services. Well, you to stand up and sing and do other things that you never do, not since primary school assembly. Why would you do that? And it's no surprise to me that over the last few years, there's been a, a tremendous boost in evangelism with Christians just going into coffee shops, sitting down with a friend and working through the Gospel of John with them. And that's been one of the most effective ways of evangelizing in Britain. It's, it's been even more powerful in alpha courses and things like that. Because again, in alpha course you have to sign up, you have to come along, you have to come into somebody else's environment. This is going right to somewhere where you feel at home. It's cost a coffee for Pete's sake. You don't like it, you can just walk out and you're back in the high street again. And uh, it's so much safer and so much easier. And it's much more effective if you take it to the church. Now, I'm not knocking evangelism in churches. I think that's great. We need to realize we need to be out there as well. And Stock goes on to say it's more than that. Paul also took the world out into the secular world. Our evangelism tends to be too emotional. We make appeals for decisions without an adequate basis of understanding. Whereas Paul taught, reasoned, and tried to persuade. As I said, unless you know where people are, then you can't even start answering their questions. And you don't tend to need to be a theologian. As I said a few weeks ago, there are seven basic questions, according to Paul Little, that non-Christians ask. And I found that to be true. You, you know, you're talking to somebody, and they say, I've got a question here that's really going to floor you. You say, okay, hit me with it. And they say, uh, you better sit down first, because this really is a dizzy. So you sit down and say, okay, hit me with it. They say, well, and then they give you the question. And you think, ah, number five again. 
And it's like that. People's minds are predictable. You don't need to know a lot, but you do have to be prepared to work through the complications in people's minds individually and carefully with them. So, uh, that was the second point he made, and he said this, our evangelism tends to be too superficial, making brief encounters and expecting quick results, whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus five years between those two places, faithfully sowing gospel seed and in due time reaping a harvest. Can we reap a harvest in hostile, secular Britain today? Well, it's tougher than it used to be. A lot tougher. This nation is gradually losing more and more of its Christian distinctives as time goes by. There are more and more young people who've not really had any contact with the Christian faith apart from a few school assemblies which may or may not be helpful. But it's possible for people to come right out of the pagan world of Paynton or Ephesus into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ if we're just prepared to work with them individually, to pay the cost of working courageously and also to do it thoroughly. May God bless us as we go to that. Let's just pray together to end the service, shall we? And it's easy preaching sermons on evangelism. And it's easy listening to them and thinking, yep, that's great, that's right. But what we need to think about is just how it affects us. Where are we in all of this? What is God calling us to do? Would it be good for us to learn a bit more about some of the other faiths that people are following? Is it just going to be a case of paying more attention at work or with the people that we meet from time to time and listening to them, asking them questions? finding out where they stand, and then saying, well, actually, what I think is a bit different. Let me tell you about what happened to me. It could be all kinds of things that God is calling us to do. We just know that he wants us to be his witnesses. And so, Heavenly Father, however our thoughts this morning apply to us individually as solo people, help us perceive that. Help us see what you're saying to us, how you're nudging and prompting us to become better witnesses, more equipped heralds of your saving message, and help us take action to pay the cost of seeing people turn to faith, come to know you, grow this church, and bring those rewards that only come when we're prepared to work like Paul did. We ask these things for your namesake. Amen.